Uh, this is my first time, uh, certainly at UBC, I think it's probably my first time here in Fayetteville, though, uh, like Brad said, I grew up in a small town in, uh, in Texas. Actually, it was East Texas, so really not very far from here, and my family and I spent a whole lot of time uh, uh, doing things as I was growing up, like fishing and water skiing and all the rest of it. So there's a chance that we came through Fayetteville at some point, stopped to get gas, stopped for a meal, something like that, but uh, I probably would have been too, too young to remember it. But at any rate, uh, it's good to be back here in, uh, in the Arklatex anyway, so I'm glad to be uh, back. I told Brad that uh, certain things about just uh, walking around and driving around Fayetteville were giving me, you know, memories of East Texas also, because I feel like it all kind of kind of goes together. Um, I'm not in East Texas anymore, though. I am in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, so I bring you uh, warm greetings from Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. We really do feel like uh, we are a sister church to you and many other churches around the country. So it's always good when we can kind of, uh, you know, uh, travel around and get to know each other as, as churches and as pastors. So um, it's, uh, it's good to be here with you today. Um, I am, in fact, from Kentucky, and it is, in fact, March Madness season. So my, my general approach to sort of getting to know a congregation a little bit and, and building some rapport is to make fun of the way uh, a certain school has done in the Final Four tournament. When I came in on Tuesday, I, I asked somebody, because I hadn't really been keeping up with, you know, all the teams. I said, how is the U of A doing in the tournament? And they said, well, you may not want to mention that at any point during the week, because we just got beat by Kansas this weekend. I said, oh. Um, the problem, though, as many of you will know, is that I really don't have a leg to stand on, even as a Kentucky man, in making fun of you guys for losing in the tournament, because uh, one of our major teams, the University of Louisville, which my church sits right next to, didn't even make the tournament this year, which is embarrassing, and the other team, the University of Kentucky, which was a two, got, ranked, or got beat by the 15th seeded Peacocks of St. Peter's, which was just tremendously embarrassing for our entire state. If you keep up with basketball, You'd have to keep up with it pretty deeply, I think. But if you're a deep, deep basketball fan, you know that the University of Louisville has had a rough go of it the last few years. And we had a particularly rough go of it this year because our sort of ringer coach that we hired from Gonzaga a couple of years ago, who was supposed to take us back to the championship. We've not been there since 2013. We won it in 2013, but then the NCAA stripped it from us for a lot of reasons that we're not going to talk about. Um, it's been, a rough, it's been a rough few years. This ringer coach, Chris Mack, was supposed to come in and sort of bring UofL back to glory in basketball. Well, in the middle of the season this year, it was obvious that things were not going well between Chris Mack and his team. And so after one particularly demoralizing loss, our star player, his name is Malik Williams, was doing a press conference after it. Coach Mack was not in the room. Uh, he, was, he was off the, 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 uh, the platform. Malik Williams was sitting there. Malik was obviously not happy. And one of the questions came to him. Malik, has the coaching staff under Chris Mack lost the trust of this team? And Malik sat there, I kid you not, for a solid 60 seconds of silence. And his eyes were kind of cutting back and forth across the room and he was looking around. And finally, after about 60 seconds, he leaned into the microphone and he said, I don't have any comment on that. 
And I kid you not, every single UofL fan in the entire universe knew that with those seven or eight words, Malik Williams had ended the career of Chris Mack at the University of Louisville. It was over. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, there was a contract signed or executed or whatever they do, and Chris Mack left the University of Louisville basketball team in the middle of the season. He didn't even finish out the season. He, he sort of even left three or four million dollars on the table, as I understand it, in order to leave the team before the season was over. Malik Williams ended it with seven words. I don't have any comment on that. Words are powerful things, aren't they? I don't know if Malik Williams had sort of planned on getting that question. I don't know if he was thinking for those 60 seconds. I'm sure he was about what exactly to say. But it didn't take a lot to end a multi-million dollar career at the University of Louisville. Seven words. I don't have any comment on that. And everybody knew it was over. Words have power. We all know that they have power. You know, Brad mentioned the little ditty that we would say in, in the playground in elementary school, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But you don't have to get much past second grade to realize that that's just not true. Sticks and stones can break your bones and words can break your heart. We Christians especially know that words are powerful. Somebody once said that Christianity is a wordy religion. You know, we write a lot of books, we write a lot of articles and blog posts, and we say a lot of things as Christians. Words are powerful. And so today we're going to talk about how to use them. We're going to be looking today at uh, a bunch of Proverbs from the book that unsurprisingly is called Proverbs. Let me give you a couple of things up front about this book in terms of background. First of all, most of this book of Proverbs was written uh, or, or spoken some 3,000 years ago by King Solomon of Israel, who was the son of the great King David, the golden age king, the king who, who reigned during Israel's greatest years. Solomon was a man renowned for his wisdom. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you probably know the story, how the Lord comes to Solomon, uh, not quite at the height of his reign, but he's on, the, he's on the ascendant. And God says, of all the things in the world, if you ask me for anything, I'll give you whatever you want. If you want power, I'll give you power. If you want riches, I'll give you riches. And Solomon, interestingly, wisely, asks the Lord to give him great wisdom. And so the Lord does, makes him the wisest person in all the world. And so Solomon becomes renowned for his wisdom throughout the world. So it's not really surprising that this great book of wisdom, Proverbs, would have been written largely by Solomon, the wisest man except for Jesus who has ever lived. The book wasn't exclusively written by Solomon, though. Proverbs is actually, a kind, you could call it kind of an anthology of wisdom. Uh, it actually contains several different collections of wisdom sayings that, that have been brought together and edited into one book. So chapters 1 through about 22 are sayings of Solomon. And then you've got from the middle of 22 all the way through chapter 24. Those are a new book identified as the 30 sayings. Then you've got an appendix to that book of 30 sayings. 25 to 29 are more sayings of Solomon that were written down several centuries after his reign during the reign of Hezekiah. Then you've got chapter 30, which is a collection of poems by this guy named Agur, son of Jaka. We don't know anything about Agur, son of Jaka, but we know he's got a sense of humor if you read chapter 30. And then chapter 31 is this other wonderful poem by a guy named King Lemuel, who, as far as we know, was never a king of either Israel or Judah. And so he must have been a king of some other nation, but we don't know anything about King Lemuel either. 
So anyway, you've got these different sort of, you know, collections of wisdom sayings in the book of Proverbs that have been brought together in a sort of anthology of, of, of wisdom. And what's the point? I mean, why did God in his, in his wisdom, in his providence, in his inspiration decide to pull together this book of, of wisdom? Well, along with Job and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, Proverbs makes up, those five books, make up a category of Old Testament literature that we call the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Now, it's always a little bit difficult to define exactly what we mean by wisdom literature because it's not as if, you know, all the wisdom in the Bible is contained in these five books and you don't get wisdom, for example, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. There is, in fact, wisdom in those books. It's also not as if these books only are books of Proverbs. No, some of them sort of tell a story in a, in a poetic kind of fashion. But these five books, including Proverbs, do seem to share a kind of unique purpose with one another. And that is to reflect on the world that God has made. All of its rhythms, all of its patterns, all of its back and forths. And to reflect on humanity's place in that world. And I think as we'll see, as we even look at the Proverbs that we're going to today, the purpose of these books is to teach us as human beings what it means to live well in the world that God has given us. Usually we think of Proverbs in these kind of little, you know, aphoristic couplet statements that, that seem to be, you know, they seem kind of like they belong on a coffee mug or on the, you know, inside a fortune cookie at a Chinese restaurant. And, and a lot of what we're going to be looking at today in fact, most of what we're going to be looking at today in Proverbs is that kind of thing. You know, it's just, you know, a little saying and then another little saying. Sometimes they're in contrast with one another. Sometimes they're kind of saying the same thing. But they're trying to sort of shoot like an arrow into your heart a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of the way that the world works. But those little aphoristic couplets are not how the book starts. It's got first, before you get to these, you know, all of these little couplets, in the first nine chapters, Solomon is actually making this sustained, organized argument. And the argument that he's making is essentially a plea to his son, whichever, whichever son or sons that he was writing to. It's a plea to his son to choose the way of, of wisdom in the world and not the way of foolishness. You can study those nine chapters. And what, what's going to surprise you, though, about those nine chapters is that ultimately... It turns out that according to Solomon, wisdom is not just a, a, a way of living. It's not just a way of doing things in the world. Wisdom, according to Solomon, turns out not to be a thing at all. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom is God. Wisdom is Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. And as the New Testament finally shows us, wisdom is ultimately the eternal Son of God made flesh. So that's the essential argument that, that Solomon makes in in chapters 1 to 9, he pleads with his son to choose wisdom over foolishness. And what he ultimately means by that is, my son, I want you to choose to follow after Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not after any other God in the world. Choose him, not them. Well, things change, though, starting in about chapter 10, where 1 to 9, or this extended argument, this plea to his son to choose Yahweh, chapter 10 changes everything. And starting in chapter 10 and running all the way through chapter 30, there is no real sustained, organized argument being made. It's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these little couplets that we mostly think of when we think of Proverbs. And those little couplets are about everything under the sun. So if you've got a Bible, I want to ask you to turn over to the book of Proverbs. And uh, strangely, I want to ask you to turn to anywhere in Proverbs that you want to. 
except chapters 1 to 9. So if you're using one of these red pew Bibles, I got one right, right down there. You can probably find them in, your, uh, in the pew rack in front of you. You can turn really anywhere from page 533 to about 550, something like that. And just let your mind and your, your eye look over those Proverbs anywhere in chapter 10 to 30, and you'll see what I'm talking about. I mean, these Proverbs are about everything you can possibly imagine. They're about pride, they're about words and work and money and social manners and friendships and marriage and parenting and politics and economics and justice and anger and fighting and how to eat well in front of a king and use manners in front of a king and not make a fool of yourself in front of high officials and the list just goes on and on and on. And the thing about it, the thing that's bewildering to people like me who want to stand up here and try to, you know, tell you what the Bible says and then offer it to you kind of on a plate in a meal that you can understand and, and eat, so to speak, the thing about it is that there's absolutely no structure or organization to these 21 chapters at all, at least as far as we've been able to see over the past 3,000 years. I mean, you've obviously got little clusters of Proverbs here and there that, that show up that'll be about the same thing, but there's nothing about these 21 chapters that gives it any sort of overarching, underlying organization. I mean, we've tried. Through all the centuries, there have been 30 centuries since the thing was pulled together, give or take. We've tried to find different kinds of ways to see a structure to it, but none of them work. You can try to break it into sections. That doesn't seem to work. You can try to identify key words. That doesn't work. You can try to, you know, see patterns in it. Like, well, maybe, maybe the pattern is something like, you know, words, work, manners, parenting. Words, work, manners, parenting. You know, it gets a lot more complicated than that. None of those patterns seem to work. Recently, one scholar wrote a commentary about the book of Proverbs, which, my goodness, of all the books of the Bible that you're going to try to write a commentary on, I would never, ever try that. It would just be so difficult. But he decided to try to organize it and say that the literal sounds of the words, like, like, like the literal alphabetic words, like pa-pa-pa-pa-pa or ka 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 ga 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 all of those literal sounds make what he, cre what he called twiglets that are running throughout the book like a bramble bush that is all twisted together. So if you follow all the Ks, like ka 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 and then ga 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 and pa 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 you end up with this kind of bramble bush of twiglets running throughout the book, which sounds to me mostly like there's no organization, so I'm going to make something up. <laughs> Bottom line, there's no structure or organization to it. So really, reading through Proverbs is really like, Walking out onto a, a, a rocky beach that's just got all, my my uh, my wife's family uh, is from the coast of Maine. Her mom's got a house on the coast of Maine, and when you walk out to the coast of Maine, it's not sort of the monochrome. You know, it's almost the color of your carpet, actually. You know, beach sand stretching as far as the eye can see. When you go up to Maine, you have all these different rocks and pebbles of different colors that are strewn across the beach. Reading Proverbs, I think, is a little bit like walking out on a main beach. Because what you see are these little pebbles that are scattered all over the, all over the book, all over the beach. And, and I wonder if that randomness of the Proverbs is actually deliberate. Like the reason Solomon wrote it the way he did, not organizing all the parenting Proverbs together, not organizing all the ones about words, not organizing all the ones about marriage. I wonder if the reason he did that was not deliberate precisely because life does not come at us in neat little categories. It comes to us strewn everywhere with no organization. 
And one minute you're thinking about parenting, and the next you're thinking about marriage, and the next you're thinking about work, and then you're thinking about your words. And the, the, the trick of wisdom is to learn how to, pull, learn how to engage all of those things as they come to you and to do it well. So I wonder if Proverbs is trying to teach us. Look, part of, part of wisdom is understanding that life doesn't come in neat little categories. But really, wisdom is about dealing well with the randomness that life tends to throw at us. Well, anyway, today we're not actually going to be taking Proverbs in all of its randomness. What we're going to be, do, we'll be doing is pulling together a bunch of Proverbs that talk about one particular topic, and that is our words. Proverbs has a lot to say, it turns out, about what we say. In fact, of the 915 verses in the book, Proverbs talks about our words and the way we use them 150 times. Almost one-sixth of the entire book is about our words. I mean, so clearly what we say and to whom we say it and how we say it is something that Proverbs and therefore God is acutely interested in. Like other topics, of course, what it says about our words is scattered around in these little, you know, Proverbs scattered throughout the book. But there are a few places where there are a number of Proverbs about words and they're kind of clustered together. So I want to give you a feel of the book. So let's read some of those little clusters. Turn with me uh, in your Bible to chapter 10, verse 18. We're just going to read a couple of these little clusters and then we'll... Look at a lot more of them, actually. But I want to give you a feel. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18. Here's what Solomon writes. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. Flip over more toward the end to chapter 25. There's another cluster of these proverbs about words chapter 25 verse 11 a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. With patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. So you can see these little clusters of Proverbs where words are, talking, are, are talked about. And throughout the book you'll find more of those. And, and you'll find even more of single little Proverbs about words. We're going to talk about a lot of them. We're going to unpack uh, these little clusters and, and a lot more. At my own church in Louisville, what I like to do is, is give a, a kind of main idea of the text that we're going to be studying today. I want to give you the, what I think is kind of the main idea of the Proverbs that are about words. And here it is. If you're taking notes, this will be the most important sentence that you can write down because you'll be able to look back at it and remember what we talked about from Proverbs. Um, if you're not a note taker, like it literally, it's one sentence. It's not going to kill you to grab a pen and write this sentence down. So you might want to think about doing that. Main idea of all these Proverbs that we're going to look about or look at about words today, God has made your words both powerful and reflective. So use them well. God has made your words both powerful and reflective. Use them well. 
So we're going to explore what Proverbs has to say about all that in three points. Point number one, the nature and importance of words. Number two, a how-to guide to being a fool with your words. I'm going to tell you how that works. If you're just dead set on being a fool with your words, I've got four foolproof ways for you to be an absolute fool with your words. So you will be appreciative of that. Number three, how to be wise with your words. Those three points. The nature and importance of words, how to be a fool with your words, and third, how to be wise with your words. Just one, one note. I think for the most part you're going to be super helped today by having a Bible open in front of you and kind of turning back and forth to at least some of the places that we're going to go to. Uh, so there are going to be times, and I'm, I'm literally going to, to fire at you today, I think somewhere between 50 and 60 different Proverbs. Sometimes I will ask you to turn to a particular proverb because we want to look at it in, in a little bit of detail. Most of the time for those 50 or 60 proverbs, I'm just going to be firing them at you as fast as I can. So what, what, I want, what I want to tell you is that it will be helpful for you to have a Bible open in front of you, but you do not have to turn to every single proverb that I mention. You don't even have to write down the addresses of every single proverb that I mention because at some point over the next day or two or week or whatever it is, I've given uh, Brad and the staff a list of all 50 or 60 proverbs in order that I'm going to cite through this sermon. And so they're going to send that out to you at some point somehow, however you, they communicate with you, and you'll be able to get those. So, uh, you know, there are going to be times when I'm firing them at you, and what I want you to do is not try to turn to everyone, not try to write everyone down, just listen to what they say. Because I think they'll be challenging and encouraging to you. All right, so let's get to it. Point number one, the nature and importance of words. I told you a few minutes ago that 150 out of 915 verses of the book of Proverbs are about your words. One-sixth of the entire book. Now, why would Solomon have spent so much time talking about words and the way we use them? Well, the answer is that in an almost unique way among everything human beings do for and to each other, words are powerful and revealing. If you think about it, there's, there's something fitting in that, right? I mean, we human beings are the only you know, species on the planet. We're the only creature on the planet that uses words. Why would that be? Well, if the Bible makes anything clear, it is that the word of God, the creator, is uniquely powerful and unstoppably effective. When God speaks, things happen. His word is powerful. So it was by his word that God created the universe. You notice that, right, in the book of Genesis? When God creates the world, he doesn't use his hands, right? He doesn't reach out and take some unformed matter and, you know, shape a camel out of it or something like that. He just says, let there be light. And what happens? There's light. Let there be dry land, let there be water, let there be fish of the sea, birds of the air, creatures on the, on the ground, and all that stuff just happens according to his word. It's by his word that God gives Adam life. It's by his word that he calls Israel to be his people. Ezekiel learns in the valley of the dead bones that it's by God's word that dead things are brought to life. It's by his word that Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb and back to life. You remember what, what Jesus says when he's standing there, right? He weeps before the tomb of his friend because his friend has been dead for four days. And then, he, and then he prays and then he cries out to the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. And when he does, the dead man comes out. God's word is powerful. Some people have said that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, every body in the tombs would have come out of the cemetery. God's word is powerful. So it stands to reason that if we as human beings are those who bear God's image in the world, well then 
our words should also bear some reflection of that power. Now, don't get carried away with that, right? You, you are not like God in the sense that you can create what, what theologians call ex nihilo. It's a Latin phrase that means out of nothing, right? Ex out of nihil, or not like nihilism, right? Out of nihilo, nothing, out of nothing. You can't do that. If you're going to create, you have to create out of something, right? You can do art, but you always take, you know, the tools of the art and the material of the art, and you put it together into something, and it becomes beautiful. But neither you nor I can create ex, ex nihilo. I cannot stare at the stage right here and say, let there be a bunny, and a bunny appears. Just, you can't do that either, and neither can I. We can't create an ex nihilo. But there is power in our words. There's power in some real way to shape and change what is. To create and to destroy, to build up and tear down. And the book of Proverbs recognizes that power inherent in our words. So if you look at Proverbs 11, 11, for example, it talks about the power of words. By the blessing of the upright, that's words, right? The blessing. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, that same city is overthrown. It changes reality. 1821 is even more to the point. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now that's not a uniquely Christian thought. That's, that's not even a, a uniquely biblical thought that words have power. All you got to do is, is go, you know, to your computer or your phone and go to Google and type in something like, uh, you know, quotes about the power of words. And you'll come up with just thousands of things that people have said about the power of words. That's because people are recognizing that even though our words can't create a world out of nothing, our words do create realities. One of my favorite things to do, it turns out, as, as a pastor is officiate weddings. I love it. You just never know what's going to happen in a wedding. And there are kind of two parts where everything can go haywire. One is when the bridesmaids and the groomsmen have been standing there for a very long time, and one of them might, might pass out. It's never funny until it's clear that the person is okay, and then it's very funny. The other place that can go haywire in a wedding is uh, the flower girl and, and the ring bearer, right? Because they're usually little kids, and, and they have to do this thing all alone. And you just never know if the little ring bearer is going to see one of his buddies over here and, like, take off across the aisle to go see his buddy, or whether he's just going to break down crying or whatever's going to happen. You just never know. My favorite part of the wedding, though, is when, uh, you know, it would normally be in the center here, but we'll just do it like this. When everything has happened, you know, there have been the promises and uh, the vows and the giving away of the bride. And the bride and groom, usually during a song, will step up here on, onto the platform with me. And they're standing, you know, face to face right here. We go through the vows. We go through the rings. We do the whole thing. And then there's this moment where I get to say, in the sight of God and in the presence of this company, I pronounce that you are man and wife. It's a powerful moment. And it has nothing to do with anything except words. Like prior to me finishing that sentence, before that period at the end of wife, these two people are not married. They are separate individual human beings. But when I say that sentence, in the sight of God and in the presence of this company, I declare that you are man and wife. Bam! Reality has changed for them forever. They are man and wife. There's a new reality in the world because my words right there have power. I married my best friend from, from East Texas. Not... I don't mean, I, I officiated his wedding, is, is, what, is what I mean to say. 
And I messed with him at that moment. Like he and his future wife were standing there, and, and I, I got to that point of the wedding, and I said, you know, in the sight of this company and in the presence of God, I declare that you are. And I said, Trey, you know I don't have to do it. <laughs> and he said, yes, you do. And so we finished it. But we both recognized that I need to say that sentence in order to create this reality of marriage. I mean, in a different way, but extremely similar way, your words can create an atmosphere of encouragement or hurt. They can create an atmosphere of anxiousness or ease. They can absolutely make the day of somebody and put a smile on their face, or they can utterly destroy the confidence of somebody and tear them down. Words are powerful. But we try to convince ourselves otherwise. And that playground taunt sticks and stones when we break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And yet probably every single one of us in this room can think back to those playground days and remember something that somebody said to us that has stuck with us for all these years. I, I do. I mean, confession time, here we go. I am 45 years old, but in the fifth grade, this little boy named Jeremy, for absolutely no reason, walked up to me on the playground, and he just out of the blue said, Greg, you are a funny-looking person. I am 45 stinking years old, and here I am still telling you about that story. And, and I still don't like people named Jeremy because of it. <laughs> we have 751 members of Third Avenue. We only have three Jeremys, and that's because I try to keep them out. <laughs> I'm kidding. If your name's Jeremy, come up. We'll, we'll reconcile with one another. It'll be, it'll be fine. Words can break and destroy just as effectively as... A brick thrown in your face, can't they? But it's not just that they're powerful. They are. Words are powerful. But Proverbs also tells us that words are liable to judgment. Because they're powerful, they carry moral weight. And Proverbs says that God will judge us for them. Let me show you a few. 50, this is where you should just listen, I think. 15.5, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. 15.9 says the same thing, except it clarifies, will not escape. That means he will perish. 14.3, by the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back. 18.7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. And wh why? Why is that? Why, why are there consequences to the way we use our words? Well, 22.12, the eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, and he overthrows the words of the traitor. You see the point? I mean, our words are not just these idle, morally insignificant wisps of air that happen to collide with other molecules in the air and enter somebody's ear. Well, they carry moral weight. And the Lord Himself watches over them, treasuring words of wisdom, but determined to overthrow the words of a fool. Why? Why is that? Well, why are words so important? Well, the answer is because our words, what comes out of our mouths, reveal what is in our hearts. Listen to what Proverbs says in 15.2 and then 10.31. In 15.2, he says, The mouths of fools pour out folly. And in 10.31, he says, The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. Now, now think about those two Proverbs, and think about them in parallel to one another. The mouths of fools pour out folly. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. Do you see his point? Why does the mouth of a fool pour forth folly? Why does the mouth of a fool pour forth folly? 
Because it is attached to a fool. That's why. And why does the mouth of the righteous pour forth wisdom? Well, because it's attached to a righteous person. It's exactly the point Jesus was making in the scripture reading from earlier this morning. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. Simple enough lesson. And yet, profound. What comes out of your mouth, the words that you speak, how you use them, are a reflection of who you are. Right down in the depths of your heart. So friend, what, what do your words say about you? What do they reflect about what's in your heart? Do your words reflect a heart that's, that's bitter? Or a heart that's sarcastic? Or a heart that's angry? Or a heart that's full of joy? Or a heart that's encouraging to others? It's an important question. It's a revealing question. Proverbs tells us that our words are not idle. They matter. They're powerful. God cares about them. And they're liable to judgment by him because they reflect who we are down in our hearts. So, so what if you don't like what you're discovering about yourself right there? What, what, what if you don't, you don't like it? You're like, oh my gosh, I am, I, my words are always so bitter to my coworkers. I am such a cynic. Everything that comes out of my mouth is, is cynicism. Everything that, I, that comes out of my mouth has an edge on it. I don't really ever encourage anybody. In fact, I expect everybody to understand that when I insult them, that's my way of encouraging them. What if you just don't like what this is revealing about you? What do, what do you do with that? I mean, do you, just, do you just change your words? Do you just stop being so bitter, so gossipy, stop being so cutting in your words? I mean, is, is that all this is right here? Is a motivational speech telling you to use your words better? Well, no, not, not at all. I mean, that's not the logic of Jesus, not the logic of Proverbs. According to them, words are just a reflection or an overflow of, of your heart. So you're not going to be able to just change the words, right? I mean, you, ought, you, you might as well be taking a, a poisoned tree, a tree that doesn't produce anything but rotten fruit all the days of his life. And you might as well go out to the garden and start duct taping apples onto the tree or taking the brown ones and painting them red. You're not changing the health of the tree. All you're doing is changing how that tree presents to other people. But the rottenness at the root still is there. But if you, if you don't like what your words reflect about you, what you need are not just new words. You need a brand new heart. As Jesus put it in John 3, you need to be born again. You need God to do the miracle of taking out your rotten, stony heart and throwing that sucker away and giving you a new one. You need to be what the Bible calls regenerated. Re is again, generated is born, born again. That's what you need. And how does that happen? How does that happen? That happens by coming to the source of all life in the universe. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. And saying, Jesus, I can't change my heart on my own. I can't do it. My heart is pouring forth fountains of poison on everybody around me, and I can't stop it. But I know you can. I know you can because you're the eternal son of God. And I know that you, Jesus, you lived the life that I ought to have lived right from the beginning. You did that before your father. You obeyed him. You had perfect communion and relationship with him. You did everything that I should have done right from the very beginning. 
And then what I deserve for rebelling against God, what I deserve for the wickedness in, in the root of my heart, death, you took that for me. You died in my place. You paid the penalty that I couldn't pay for my sin. And then you rose again. So that if I will unite with you, if I'll take mercy from your hands and embrace you, I'll rise right along with you to newness of life now and then to the hope of the resurrection in the last day. Some of you need to do that today because you have kind of pulled off the lid of your heart and you're going, whoa, what is that? I'm telling you, friend, you're not going to be able to fix that on your own. But Jesus can fix it. He promises, if you'll come to me and take mercy from my hand, if you'll trust in me to save me, rely on me alone to save you, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. Not all at once, but I'll fix it, and I'll save you. And then you know what happens? You know, you know what happens when, when, when the Lord regenerates your heart, gives you a new heart? The words start to change. The fruit starts to change. When the poisoned root of the tree is, is made healthy, when grace pours down into there, when there's regeneration that happens and the root is brought to life, you don't have to duct tape apples on the tree anymore. You don't have to paint them red because the life of the tree starts to go up the trunk and into the leaves, and all of a sudden you've got fruit. But you can't do it backwards. You can't duct tape fruit onto the tree. You can't change the words and expect that to change the root. It's got to go from the bottom up. You have to have your heart changed by Jesus. And then the fruit starts to change. But of course, even after you're a Christian, it doesn't all happen at once, right? Boom. Like the tree is totally healthy. Bam. All the, all the fruit is healthy. We know that. You know that as a Christian. We have to work hard. To grow in wisdom in the way we use our words. So point number two, how to be a fool with words. How to be a fool with your words. We already know that Proverbs divides human beings into two huge categories. It, it divides them into wise people and foolish people. And not surprisingly, the book has a ton to say about how fools use their words. So here we go, a how-to guide for, well, foolproof tips on how to be a fool with your words. Four tips on how to be a fool with your words. Number one, number one, how to be a fool with your words. Talk a lot. Talk a lot. You know that what you have to say is of the utmost importance to you, and so you should absolutely assume that it will be of the utmost importance to everyone around you. Proverbs has so much to say about that. 1019, for instance, goes right at it. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. In other words, the more words you pile up in your life, the more opportunities you're creating for yourself to sin. That's what that means. 1728 puts it kind of humorously. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Sort of the same idea as the old saying that you've probably heard. Better to be silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt from everyone. And bottom line, 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. But Proverbs also says, look, it's, it's not just the number of words that gets you in trouble. You can pile them up. That gives you more opportunity to sin. It's also the speed with which we spit them out. And I don't mean talking fast. People make fun of me a lot of times for talking fast. And I try not to do that, but I can't help it. But that's not even what this is talking about. It's talking about the light speed with which words move from our heads, the six inches down to our tongues, and pop out. For most of us, it moves too fast. 2920, 
Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. There are so many lessons to keep in mind here that Proverbs is teaching us. One of the marks of wisdom is actually to not say everything that might come into your mind. One of the marks of a wise person is not to take it as a life motto that I'm just saying what I think. Yes, you are, and that's the problem. Sometimes saying what you think doesn't make you honest. It doesn't make you a straight shooter. It just makes you a fool, which is a hugely important thing to remember in a world of social media. You know all the social media things, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, every single one of them is basically designed by Satan to get you to violate every single one of these proverbs. To get you to say too much. To give full vent to your spirit. And to do it as hastily as possible. One thing I tell my congregation about, about social media is, is look, mo most of you, when you pop off that Facebook post or that Twitter, die, you know, hashtag I'm mad. Most of you, the reason that you do that is because you think that somehow, in, in some way, your little tweet or Facebook post is like going to move the national needle on these issues. Right? That's what you're thinking. My post might go viral this time, and I'll move the needle, and that will affect the presidential election in, the, in a country of 350 million people. It could happen. That's what we're all thinking, right? But just, but just like... Like, get off the drug, man. Like, 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 do you honestly think that even if your post went viral to, let's say, 150,000 people, which would be huge, do you really think it's going to move the national needle? I promise you it's not. Guess what needle it could move, though? It could move the needle in a bad way in your church of 650 people. Brothers and sisters, be careful about what you say, even behind the computer screen. If, if you took all these Proverbs to heart, how would your social media habits change? It's worth thinking about. Here's number two, how to be a fool with your words. Tell lies. If you want to be a fool with your words, tell lies. Sometimes it's necessary to do that in order to get the best outcome. And besides, it doesn't really hurt anybody. Well, here's what Proverbs says. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. That's 1222. Which is not a huge surprise. One of the Ten Commandments is literally, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But Proverbs goes even deeper and, and, and considers why lying is so evil. So here's what it says in 25.18. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. I mean, you see the point, right? Saying false things about another person in one way or another harms them. It harms their reputation. It takes something from them that shouldn't be taken. But even worse, did you know Proverbs says that lying about someone arises out of a heart of hatred for that person? 26, 28, a lying tongue hates its victims. When's the last time you lied about somebody, even just a little bit? Maybe even just exaggerated something in order to make them look a little bit worse and yourself a little bit better. Friend, the Bible says that's not just a little white lie. It's hatred in your heart coming to a boil and boiling over out of your mouth. Lie a lot. 
if you want to be a fool. Number three, gossip and slander as much as possible. If you want to be a fool with your words, gossip and slander as much as possible. Share everything you know and even share some things that you don't know. After all, what you're about to tell that person is not really gossip. It's just a prayer request. Proverbs has plenty to say about gossiping slander. 18.8, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. A whisperer. And that's one of the things that, that Proverbs calls a, a gossiper. And, it, and it's right. I mean, you and I both know that that's right. When somebody gives you that, that little, little, little bitty morsel of stuff, right? Little bit of info about that elder or about that deacon or about that, that fellow church member. Man, it's just like chocolate. It's just delicious. Right? And then you get to, like, regurgitate it to others like a mommy feeding her little birds. And it's delicious. That little piece of info. Yeah, it's gross. It's supposed to be gross. Gossip is gross. What's the result of that? Well, Solomon's got our number on that too. 1628. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer, listen to, listen to it, a whisperer, a gossiper, separates close friends. You've seen that. I've seen that. I've seen that in my church in the last six months. People begin to talk to one another, to gossip and slander and assign motives to one another. And what's the result? The separation of close friends. Have you ever, ever, ever in your entire life seen gossip within the life of a church pull people together in unity? I am so glad we had this season of gossip together. It, it just produced so much good fruit in the life of our church. That is not how it works. You ever seen the movie The Hurt Locker? Anybody? You've probably seen the movie The Hurt Locker. Yeah, I've seen it. I'm not going to recommend it, but it's, you know, can't do that. But, but it's a good movie. Um, in one of the scenes of the movie, there's this guy, his job is to, to defuse bombs or landmines. And uh, he, his job is to kind of go out into the sands and find the place where they're all sort of connected. And I don't understand it. But anyway, there's this one scene in the movie where he picks up this thing out of the dirt and pulls on it just a little bit. And you can see the sand move in about eight different directions all around him. And he's surrounded by landmines. And, and you know that if he does one thing wrong, bam, that whole network of landmines is going to blow up. Do you know that Satan is busy, like right now, laying that kind of network of landmines throughout this church? He's letting you say this little thing to that other person, and it lays a fuse from you to that landmine right there. And then this person over here says that little thing, and it lays a fuse to that landmine, and then to that landmine, and that landmine. And in this person's heart, over here, he's creating just enough bitterness so that when that fuse is lit, bam! And then when that landmine goes off, that fuse is going to light, and bam! Over here. And before you know it, Satan has laid such a, land, a, a, a network of landmines throughout your church, and he lights the fuse, and boom! UBC is dead. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing in your church right now. And you're either going to join him in that work of laying fuses and laying landmines or letting your heart become bitter and become a landmine against somebody else. Or do you know what you're going to be doing? You're going to be somebody that when the fuse of gossip comes to you and is about to pass through you to somebody else, you say, uh-uh, not me. That fuse stops right there. You're going to be going around snipping those fuses, making peace. Solomon talks about this too. 
Look at 2620. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. And gossip burns through a church like fire. That's what it does. The only way to stop it, I mean, you've seen a fire burning, you know, you've seen fields where they'll, they'll burn out a, you know, a, a fire break in the field so that the fire will burn right up to where they want it to burn and then it'll stop because there's nothing left to burn. Well, Solomon's saying that you, if you're a whisperer, if you're a gossip, you're just one more log on the fire. You're just burning and catching other people on fire and on and on it goes. But if you decide as a Christian, I'm not going to be another log on the fire. When the fire comes to me, it's going out. That's the way of wisdom. If you want to be a fool with your words, gossip and slander as much as possible. Number four, be angry and speak anger in your words. If you want to be a fool with your words, be angry and speak anger with your words. You deserve, as a human being, to vent. And the people who made you angry, well, they deserve everything they're going to get. Proverbs says, no, that's, that's not the case. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man of quick temper acts foolishly. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to a fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Anger destroys friendships. It's like a dam that's breaking. It'll flood a church. Here's the big point number three, how to be wise with words. It won't take very long because it's kind of just the opposite of what we've just been talking about. How to be wise with your words. Number one, exercise self-control. Exercise self-control. Don't speak too much or too quickly. 21-23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. 18-2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. 1813, the heart of the, of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked just pours out evil things. I mean, ultimately, all that goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning. Proverbs understands that words are powerful, and they change reality for good or ill, and therefore it cautions us to treat words with respect, not just to throw them around. I mean, you ever talk to your friends and, and you, you kind of take a, a humorous pride and I got no filter, y'all. I got no filter between head and mouth. There's nothing in between here. I just, I tell you what I've got, whatever comes to mind. I'm, I'm real like that. I'm authentic like that. Well, you may be real. I'm sure that you are being real. But being real is not always being right or wise. Part of being a mature Christian is to learn to exercise self-control with your words. To speak neither too much nor too quickly. Here's number two. How to be wise with your words. Don't use your words to create fights. Use them to make peace. Don't use your words to create fights. Use them to make peace. 14.19. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. 15.18. A, tem a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. But he who is slow to anger quiets contention. 26.17, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. There are others I could give you, but the point is there, there are some people in churches and in the world and everywhere else who just constantly seem to be on a hair trigger, just waiting to be provoked, waiting to be offended. And the slightest provocation, even things that sometimes aren't provocations at all, 
just send them into a defensive explosion. I mean, I, you know, I suppose that's a, that's a strategy for getting one's way, for protecting one's prerogatives. But friend, if that's your tendency, you got to listen to what Proverbs is saying. It's just saying, take a beat, right? Think about it. Count to ten. Count to three if that's all you got. Make sure that what you're taking as an immediate provocation to you is actually not that at all. The best way to move forward, even the best way to persuade people to see it your way, is with gentleness, with a soft answer according to Proverbs, not a machine gun volley of return fire. Determine that here at UBC... In your workplace, in your family, you're going to use your words to be a peacemaker and not a fire setter. Number three, use your words to build others up, not to tear them down. 27.9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. It's not talking about literal oil and perfume, and you can tell that from the second half of that proverb. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel, his, his words. 1225, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. 31, 8 and 9, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Friend, how do you use your words? That's what we've been talking about all morning. How do you use words? Your words. If you could look back on your life and see what you've left in your wake through your words, is it wounded people or is it encouraged people? Is it just a swath of brokenness and destruction that you've left with your words or is it people who are built up? When I was a kid, I used to fantasize that I had these wizard powers. We didn't even have like Harry Potter, but I just used to think like I've got, I got wizard powers. And so I would take like, you know lasers out of my eyes or whatever and make things blow up in the distance. I used, to, I used to think that just with these wizard powers I could change reality. Wave my hand, point a finger, change or create reality. Well, I think what Proverbs is kind of showing us with these words of wisdom is that we kind of do have those powers to change reality. They don't shoot out our eyes. They're not lasers or electric bolts that we can shoot out of our fingers, but that power comes in our, in our words, out of our mouths. We can create strife or we can create peace. We can bind up hearts or we can wound them. We can save somebody's life or we can destroy it. We can make things explode or we can calm storms all with our words. Friends, that's an incredible amount of power that God has given us. So let's commit as individuals and you as a church to using that power well and carefully and wisely. Let's pray.